0: 2023 starting off nicely, I've uh, put on a little bit of weight. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Strangely enough, normally I look at Christmas and that period and I think, well, it's gone by too quickly. And, you know, Uh, today, this time around, I actually felt like, okay, I had enough of it and uh, let's get on with 2023. Couldn't agree with you more. We
1: did a lot of meeting with family and friends, something we hadn't done for a few years. But towards the end, we're like, okay, we need we need everyone to leave the house now. I want to go back to the office. I need to start work.
0: Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, So I don't know. I'm thinking good things for 2023. And then also realizing that 2030 is really around the corner now. That's amazing,
1: Alberto. So many people make New Year's resolutions. What's your 2030 resolution?
0: Ah, good, 2030 resolution. I think just being more consistent with everything, you know? Consistency is key.
1: Yes, yes, completely agree.
0: Hi everyone, I'm one of the producers of No Cost Extension. In today's episode, Deval speaks to Alberto Ligi, the curator of the Do One Better Knowledge Hub and the host of the podcast, Do One Better, that showcases the very best in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. Prior to this, Alberto was the global CEO of the Novak Djokovic Foundation and Director of Development at the Duke of Edinburgh's International Awards Foundation. Before we begin the episode, a note to listeners, Dasra's annual philanthropy week kicks off at the end of February, and it's going to be a great convergence of ideas and action for a billion thriving. You can go to Dasra's website for more information on DPW 2023. And now on with the episode.
1: Um, yeah, so I think with that, Alberto, I think to start with, I'd love to, you know, for our listeners to learn a little bit about yourself. I know when you interviewed me on your podcast, I realized that you had done quite a bit of work again in the foundation world, and then decided to launch a podcast. So I think there's similarities between your story and my story. But but yeah, it'd be great for people to understand sort of what brought you into the sector and and why you decided to you know do a podcast.
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, thanks for having me on the show. It's, it's great to see you again. It's good to be on the show. And indeed, you were on the Do One Better uh, podcast uh, last year, and you've enriched our body of knowledge with your insight, which is really good, and, and passion and good humor. Um, look, I ended up here not by design. Uh, I, I did undergrad and postgrad business. And uh, and I was in the private space uh, before I got into the philanthropy world. So I used to be in capital introduction, dealing with high net worth individuals based here in Europe who were interested in emerging markets, frontier markets, that sort of stuff, a big focus on Latin America. And that's how, you know, they started getting into they started asking about social returns in conjunction with the financial return. And that's sort of where it got me thinking that was impact investing at its very nascent stages. But that's sort of how I I got into the philanthropy space. I'm originally from Argentina and I'm a paragon of globalization, you could say. I lived in the US and in Canada, Luxembourg, Switzerland, and now here in the UK. Actually, i lived in the UK for most of my life, even though I don't sound like it. Um, But what I would say is uh, having had really good exposure, both to the private sector and the not-for-profit space, I think we need to embrace a healthy appetite for collaboration. and before, before launching the podcast, the Do One Better podcast back in 2019, I was the, um, the global CEO of the Novak Djokovic Foundation. So if you're into tennis, uh, you'd know who he is. A fairly good player. And let's keep our fingers crossed for the Australian Open. He is playing literally right now as we're talking. Uh, so I'm keeping, I, I obviously you have my undivided attention for today's show. But I have another screen uh, showing me what's going on on the Australian Open. Um, And before that, I was with the Duke of Edinburgh's Award. So I was the Director of Development for the Duke of Edinburgh's uh, Award on the international side. Uh, Thoroughly loved that. And um, yeah, so that's a little bit of me. Uh, I I, I hope we achieve the the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals for 2030. But uh, we're just six years out. Really, right? Uh, so we need to we need to do a little bit more than than we're doing. I think if we're going to get there.
1: No, and and I think we spoke a little bit about this on your podcast as well around how COVID has just set us back um, in certain areas, at least in India, five, even ten years when you look at some of the statistics and globally too. I mean, I think it's been a hard time for everyone and it just showed the cracks that emerged with communities who already uh, were struggling, uh, but but somehow willing or able to get by thanks to their own hard work and inspiration and spirit. But, but you know, it just threw everyone back. And so I guess as you look at 2030 and you were saying earlier, of course, that here it's not just a happy new year, but it's also looking forward to 2030. Um, what are some of the areas that you feel that, you know, as a development sector, I guess we should really be doubling down on to just create greater equity and dignity in the world?
0: Yeah, good question. Thanks. The uh, equity, dignity, really important words, often neglected, I think. Uh, But um, but look, I think uh, I've now done over 200 uh, case studies and interviews with, with really re- remarkable folks. And they get to share their insight with me and I get to be a little bit of a sponge and take in all of that uh, knowledge and wisdom that's that's being shared. And And I keep that in my head a little bit and I try to share it, right, w- with the external world. And there are some trends out there that I would think are, are probably worth uh, referencing here. And then we can perhaps drill into some of these uh, I- I- if you want. But If we're looking at improving the world, some of the things I'd say are uh, business as a force for good is 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 something that uh, some people embrace, but many people look at business very skeptically, and I think that's fine. I mean, skepticism is 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 healthy, and indeed, corporates look after the bottom line. I mean, but even if they're pursuing their self-interest at at this stage, there's an appreciation that if we don't tackle climate, if we don't you know, mitigate uh, risk and value chains. If we don't uh, uh, do other things, then we're, we're just simply gonna fail and, and, and shares are gonna go down. So corporates themselves, with the budgets they have, with the leverage they have, with the customer base they have, uh, they're much larger than the world of philanthropy. And I think looking at corporates as as a part of the solution is, is really important. And it is a trend. Um, there is the the sort of global north and global south power imbalance. And, you know, we touched a little bit about the inequities. I think that's a key area to, to keep in mind. Um, but there are contradictions, right? So you have uh, people talking about the global north and global south. Yes. Uh, and yes, empowering those on the ground with lived experience and making sure that it's their voice that's heard and that it's not the Global North imposing their views. Uh, Yet there are also valid arguments that come up saying, well, a lot of times people in the Global North, uh, some of these foundations that we think about if we're generalizing a bit, yes, they have statisticians, they have economics experts, they have uh, people who have that evidence base, right? Who read those peer reviewed journals. So how do we combine both of these things? Philanthropy as, a, as, um, risk capital. Looking philanthropy as risk capital, looking at philanthropy as risk capital is another big trend. You know, a lot of times you wonder, wh- where does philanthropy fit in? And philanthropy is very, very small. I think uh, even, if I'm not mistaken, the, 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 the Gates Foundation, th- with their big endowment, they can't cover the education budget of the smallest U.S. state in, uh, f- for more than two years. So that gives you an idea of how small it is. So looking at philanthropy as risk capital and... Um, And one of my favorites now is really also engaging with policymakers and doing it in a timely way, effective way, and not bombarding them too much. Because a policymaker only has 24 hours in the day, just like you and me. Uh, So uh, how do we as as a community engage with policymakers in a way that doesn't stretch them too much with with their ability to grasp what's happening but also gives them the right information especially at the time when they're making policy decisions so anyway that's a very long answer to a fairly short question but those are some of the some of the trends that i think are 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 out there that that are worth um exploring and and needless to say there's loads of challenges as well (laughs) that we can we can delve on
1: thank you for that and i think um going into each of these, and I really appreciate it, just sort of, uh, in hearing you speak, I guess, I I felt like you sort of covered four different areas. Um, You know, one is sort of, the last one was more of policymakers, government, and as you rightfully said, people don't realize at times, but government budgets around the world, regardless of what country you live in, will be far greater than what any individual philanthropist can give. Um, and I think that example you just gave about Gates and, and you know, the smallest state in America's education budget sort of demonstrates that, uh, especially when in a country like India, one of our states has 220 million people living in it. And so when you start thinking of that sort of size and scale, um, government is Fairly critical. I think the second or you know, the first one you talked about was sort of the corporate sector, and and we all now you know have seen companies outgrow the sizes of economies. Um, and I think at least with certain sectors, uh, given it's January 2023, certain sectors valuations have gone down fairly significantly in the last six months, I guess. But still, you sort of you know the the, the power of the corporate sector, and ideally doing you know greater good than 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 evil. Uh, so to speak. Philanthropy, of course, is, is a big place. And and then I think the Global South and Global North. And and I guess since a lot of our listeners are, are, are new to this space, I, I thought maybe we can spend a little bit of time um, on talking about the Global South and Global North.
0: So Global North, Global South, by the way, we're generalizing very broadly here, sort of like a ham-fisted uh, description of reality, right? Um you know people used to use the word third world and developing world and global south now and um i remember the first time i ever heard the term global south and it actually it was a few years ago but i wasn't but i remember initially thinking what exactly do they mean by global south uh, but roughly speaking we are talking about the developing world we're talking about countries generally speaking in the in the, in the southern hemisphere and um but let's not forget you could also put in the global east and that's a whole different topic but and so we think about the global south as developing world the global north the rich world the, imagine the OECD countries the, the the club of wealthy economies so we think about foundations that are well endowed that are based in Europe and the United States and Canada and so forth uh, so the challenge is there and by the way this is an area that's close to my heart i am originally from argentina i pointed out Uh, So I have experienced, lived experience, you know, both global north and global south. And and there are many challenges, but I think if we're going to, again, generalizing a little bit, but if we think about the global uh, north, uh, you know, abundant uh, financial resources and simply allocating these to try to alleviate the challenges that are being faced in the global south. But are you doing it in a way that's thoughtful and considerate? Uh, of of those who are who are living and experiencing these challenges day in and day out, so there's this um, problem occasionally that the 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 funds that are being deployed may not be deployed in the most effective way it may not be uh, uh, deployed in a way that considers what's happening in the global south it may not be conducive to building capacity and genuinely trying to get um, individuals from the global south to spread their wings develop their own abilities and solutions and become self-sufficient so roughly speaking global north global south power imbalance i am a visiting fellow at the Center for Strategic Philanthropy at uh, Judge Business School at the University of Cambridge. And that is a key area of focus, is that power imbalance between the global north, global south. So for anyone who's interested in finding out a little bit more about the global north, global south, power dynamic, power imbalance, I'd highly encourage you to take a look at the Center for Strategic Philanthropy at Judge Business School at Cambridge and uh, Shanali Banerjee, who, who heads that uh, that center. Again, a wealth of knowledge there. Uh, so more, more than I could more than I could talk about today.
1: In fact, uh, as you were talking about the Center, uh, we've jointly, with many other authors from around the world, uh, have written a book for the Center uh, on, again, this particular topic. And and I think, uh, in a nutshell, it's sort of what we've seen even in the Indian context, I would say, is um, you can extrapolate sort of those who have money but have not had those experiences, making decisions for, you know, those who need the money, but then because the, the, the lived experiences are so different, just because, for example, I can attribute most of my success, and I'm sure, Alberta, to a certain extent for you, on education that our parents were able to provide, it was because we had everything else in place, shelter, <laughs> sanitation, uh, healthcare, the rest of it. And, and that's not necessarily the case you know, for others. And, and so the reason I'm just bringing this up is at least in our work with many of the philanthropists uh, that we work with even in India, helping them understand that their solution may not be the solution that the poor need. And and they should understand and listen to those who are struggling and working themselves out of poverty and trust that they will have better solutions. Because yes, education is important, but if you don't have access to water or toilets or even shelter, then there may be other issues that need to be solved for then you to be able to study and absorb that kind of information. And so
0: but again, it's uh, just highlighting also that, that these are generalizations and there is a lot of great philanthropy that happens in the global south for the global south. You know, great philanthropy and great wealth in India, alleviating great challenges in India uh, and, and leaving the global north, as it were, entirely out of it. So these are generalizations, but sometimes these generalizations facilitate a framework of thinking that, that uh, enables us to pick out a problem, right?
1: And, and along those lines, and given that you've had the ability to interview so many leaders, global leaders and local leaders on your podcast, have there been shifts that you've seen, I guess, since 2019 of even people being introspective and wondering if they can be more proximate uh, or participatory in decisions made as it comes to both allocation of capital, as well as enabling those on the ground to make decisions versus somebody, you know, much further away?
0: Yeah. I mean, the notion of trust-based philanthropy, which is not exactly Global North, Global South, power imbalance, but it's connected to it in many ways. That did not, I mean, while while it did exist as a thematic area of exploration before 2019, it certainly wasn't a phrase that came into the discourse of our podcast in 2019. It was only when the pandemic hit and it was well on its way that trust-based philanthropy started being part of it and indeed the the notion of the global north and global south power imbalance that that came about over the last 4 years where uh, as far as uh, our podcast is concerned so as far, as far as the guests who were on the do one better podcast and it's become really a big a big part of it uh, i think one of the first people who i remember dwelling on this and uh, being very mindful of the language that they were using with John Goodwin when he was the chief executive of the LEGO Foundation. And I just remember he was very considerate uh, when talking about the beneficiaries that the foundation is helping. And, uh, and I took note of it. I thought, okay, that's uh, it's very interesting and it's, uh, it's very empathetic. Also, Doug Griffiths, who's the, the, the president of the Oak Foundation. Not a big brand uh, as far as the general public is concerned, but the Oak Foundation's a huge billion dollar outfit. And the, the really, again, empathy is the word I use, uh, and humility, the way they go about how considered they are for the feelings of their beneficiaries. Uh, just even when you're requesting a, an update report on how funds are being used and so forth, instead of saying it's an evaluation meeting or something like that, they might say we're, we're having a shepherding session or and basically trying to make people at ease. And I thought that's a, that, that, that to me reflects a big heart. And so those are things that at the very start in 2019, when I launched a podcast, they were not, they were not part of day in and day out and mind you, it's a weekly show, so I, I, I hear what's happening every week and it, it's only over these last four years that that's happened, um, which I think is a good thing. Um, again, though, touching on something that I mentioned at the very start, there are a lot of contradictions in our world. And so, even if we are empathetic and humble and big-hearted and so forth, we also, in my opinion, need to embrace the very best of what everybody has to offer. So we can't go to one to an entire uh, extreme where we're only listening to uh, people from a specific area, and 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 just because somebody happens to be based in Geneva, we're not listening to what they have to say. You know, if if you went to. MIT and you have a degree in economics, if you went to Harvard and you have a, a, a master in government, you know, a school of government um, or a PhD, if you've spent your 20 years researching what works and what doesn't and, and, and putting pen to paper and, 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 uh, and being published in, in you know, peer-reviewed journals, we should not discount those voices and that intellect uh, just because they happen to be living uh, in, in New York or London or Geneva. In the same way that we should not discount and appreciate, we should appreciate the the, the insight of those with lived experience who know the realities around them and who know the bottlenecks and the frustrations and the uh, and the corruption or the uh, or the initiatives that are literally right next door to them and so which you can't figure out from far away. And and just to expand on that, I think it's important for grant makers to think uh, seriously about having a presence in these uh local markets as it were uh, and that doesn't just mean fly in somebody from from your uh, head office in states and, and 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 put them in bangladesh but it means also looking at local talent and bringing that talent and making that talent able to to be a genuine player in how things are being decided and and not just taking the orders from the board but being part of the board as well
1: i think they're I mean, completely agree with you. And I feel like bringing both of those perspectives in is critical. Um, and I think you hit the nail on the head when it uh, comes down to researchers, right? And and so I think the issue is a lot of times, at least up and coming philanthropists who are new because they've spent most of their time creating wealth and being amazing in whatever business they created wealth in, um, their exposure to the sector is minimal. And and then many times those knee-jerk reactions without research, without compiling data. And that data could be stuff that's been written about, that data could be speaking to communities on the ground. It's 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 listening and learning, I guess, is a big shift that we, at least in the Indian context, I would say, and to a certain extent, even globally, when, when sort of um, a business leader sort of dons the hat of being a giver, they at times forget that it took them many, many years to become a business leader. And when it comes to philanthropy, whether it's Doing both, you know, listening to experts as well as visiting to the community and understanding the community like they did in their business. They, they heard their consumers. They also looked at stats and then they made certain decisions. That sort of decision making respect, I guess, for the decision and understanding for the stakeholders is really, really important. And we've spent a lot of time, I guess, at in, in showing them how if they take that time and effort to, to do this, their ability to just create greater impact is, is far higher then sort of, oh, well, I needed this when I was young. Therefore, any young person today needs the same thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, Larry Kramer, who runs uh, the Hewlett Foundation, I th- if I remember correctly, and I'm paraphrasing, but he, he said something along the lines of, there's a lot of really bad philanthropy out there. So just being mindful of that reality. And then also to the point of business leaders transitioning or, or moving into Um, the the space of philanthropy, sometimes these individuals morph into an unrecognizable disposition. And by that, I mean, they may have had a really healthy appetite for sensible risk taking in their business world. And then they show up in the not-for-profit space and all of a sudden they're entirely risk averse and we need healthy risk taking. Uh, But many business leaders somehow you know, they, they view it as a different uh, beast. And I think th- there are more commonalities than meet the eye initially. And I think uh, we need the very best of business leader uh, intuition and risk taking. So let's not uh, leave that at the door whenever you show up into the governance of a charity <laughs> or a foundation, but actually think about how you can leverage it and give it your attention, right?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, that's when, when we started, that my wife and I, Nira, we worked at more in an investment bank. And that was what was shocking to us, I guess. And this was in the 90s that the same investors would be so thoughtful, they'd analyze sectors, they'd meet management teams, they'd do all of this work. And after making an investment is when most of them actually started the work, so to speak. So the check was written, but then access to networks, understanding challenges, making sure that that organization and company succeeds. But when it came to philanthropy, they'd sort of give money to whoever knocked on their door or had the best gala. And then they'd say, oh, well, how come that investment uh, or that, you know, charitable contribution did not go as planned. And we're like, but but how could it, if you made your investment decisions like that on the for-profit space, of course, you'd lose your, you know, your shirt on everything. So how come you're not using the same discipline? Understand the sector, of course, have different standards for an NGO that has a $200,000 budget than a company that has a $2 billion budget, but still like be engaged and involved and, and make long-term investments. I mean, no investor that I know of looks at a one-year sort of timeframe, but in philanthropy, these same people many times are like, I'll just give for a year and see what happens. You have to give the five, the seven years, you need to be patient, you need to take the risks, like you said, but calculated risks and be there to help those organizations.
0: And it is a bit of a catch-22 for the recipients sometimes, because if they have, if the charity, if the receiving charity has too much money in the bank, well, then where's the need right what am i going to give you if you have a a very healthy balance sheet on the other hand if your balance sheet's completely (laughs) devoid of any funds how can you plan accordingly and try to meet the needs of those folks on the ground who are really in need of charitable intervention and and you can't run the risk of doing a a project in a in a in a half-assed manner right you can't just pull out midway through your project so i completely agree with you you know you need to take a long-term approach and and the, the funding that you do. I think a little bit more, more than just 12-month horizon.
1: Exactly. And I mean, you've interviewed against so many individuals. What, what were some of, I guess, the key insights that you've gained from, from the interviews that you've done in your podcast?
0: Um, that everybody's very, very different. That people, uh, interestingly, have a different persona sometimes from when the button is, uh, the the record button is on versus when the record button is off. And you may experience this yourself. Uh, You know, what people say on air uh, might be a little bit less colorful, less profane, less forthright than what they will say to you before you click the record button or right afterwards, right? Collaboration is one of those topics, for instance, really interesting. Everybody talks about how wonderful collaboration is. But with the exception of one interview, people don't highlight the challenges, the vanity, the ego, the territorial nature of many individuals and organizations, which I can understand logically why they are, why they exist. But these realities sometimes are not highlighted publicly. And I think it was, if you're into rugby, I'll name drop here. So we had Sia Khaleesi and Rachel Khaleesi. Cia uh, is the the captain of the Springboks, South Africa's national rugby team. He is the first black captain uh, of the team. And 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 his wife Rachel, and they were both on the show. They spoke with a great deal of passion, especially the work they do around gender-based violence in South Africa. But I think when we touched on the issue of of of, uh, of collaboration, I think it was Rachel, if I'm not mistaken, uh, who said along the lines, "Yeah, well, no, it doesn't really happen that much. I Maybe mean, we want it to happen, but it's very difficult sometimes." So that's a key insight that I would say you you, you learn to understand people and their realities and uh, and what happens. Also, what you. What you read in the papers, in the press, is somewhat behind the curve of what's actually happening day in and day out. So I think there's some topics now that you don't read in the in the main uh, news outlets when you're thinking about philanthropy. But you probably will be reading about it in, in two or three years' time. And I alluded to it a little bit, which was the... Um, engaging with policymakers. So, you know, we look at philanthropy as risk capital. And just for for the audience who maybe is not that aware of these things, a lot of the thinking these days is thinking, okay, well, philanthropy is small, but philanthropy has a specific role to play in terms of taking risks that government may not take or private sector won't take. And then as a philanthropist and a foundation, you can do this. You're not responsible to your shareholders. You can do, take these, these sensible risks. And if you prove If you have proof, evidence-based, statistically robust and significant outcomes that show you that this intervention worked and it worked for 10,000 people and you have a randomized control trial validating it and so forth, then you could go to a policymaker and say, look, it's worked. This does improve literacy rates. This does uh, improve uh, longevity or or whatever uh, metric you're looking at. Uh, and then the idea is that the policymaker will embrace that, take it on board, and then it becomes a government program, and the philanthropist can move out and do something new and and different. Now, if that thinking prevails, the whole of the big foundations in industry and industry and philanthropy world, uh, you you know, you only have one education minister in country X, and if you have uh, a fifty big billion dollar foundations showing up at their door with all of these RCT backed uh, evidence based initiatives. Uh, the, the poor person's going to go crazy, you, you know. So thinking about how collaboration can happen on that front and and how you get the best out of the policymakers um, by by speaking as a, in a more sort of unified voice, I think that's stuff that you don't really read about today, but I think you will be reading more about it in the next three three years or so.
1: I mean, an example that in hearing you speak is, is uh, here in India, the NFSSM Alliance. Um, and my board and stakeholders really laugh when I explain what this is. It's the National Fecal Sludge and Septage Management Alliance. So it's literally treating shit. Um, But but to your point, the, the it is a group of multiple nonprofit organizations focusing on their sanitation space that have come together, that share best practices and learnings and work very closely with government to do exactly what you've said, have one message a year, not 50. And so all of these leaders, again, who've had lived experiences who are doing great work, they they sort of bring it all together and say, okay, well, then how do we work with government with the exact realization that you just said and say, look, let's do one thing a year, because you can't do everything at once. And they've been very um supportive of a lot of the government missions at a central and state level because of this and and just sharing that. But but it's sort of having collaborative action. Coming together, and and that doesn't change what each organization does. They all, of course, do various things across the value chain of the treatment of fecal sludge. But but having everyone come together and saying, okay, well, if the government also is slow moving, also has, like you said, different responsibilities than an individual philanthropist has or an NGO leader. What is the one thing each year that we sort of work towards building? And I feel like that that approach, we're seeing more and more in the Indian context of making that happen and and, and really respecting the government officials on what they can and cannot do as well.
0: Yeah, and I would add to, to everything here uh, in, in the same thrust, which is that foundations can accumulate a lot of really interesting insight into what works and what doesn't work. And uh, when you are engaging with the policymakers, a theme that has arisen over the last uh, four years, of certainly with the podcast, is how do you ensure that this insight, this evidence, isn't just locked away in some website or some PDF file, but actually is proactively pushed out to uh, the audience that you're aiming to engage with and that it reaches the policymakers at the time when they're looking to make a decision. I think that's, um, that's really important, but uh, it's a work in progress.
1: Again, I've seen this happen many times where as a sector, as a whole, we spend so much time on research and data and evidence, but then we don't spend the same amount of time amplifying that, getting it in front of the right people, whether they be givers, NGO leaders or government officials for that matter. And we think our job is done because we set it on a website <laughs> and it's finished. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I think you know mediums such as a podcast are important because it will allows sort of information to be amplified two circles who are not sort of just these echo chambers. And I think that's the problem with the sector as a whole, that we unfortunately associate ourselves with echo chambers.
0: That's why I launched the Do One Better uh, podcast and Knowledge Hub is just because, you know, when I was CEO of the of the Novak Djokovic Foundation, I was had some really great meetings with my counterparts at other organizations. And, and that's good. And it's great for me. I learn a lot, but, uh, you know, it doesn't help the general audience. And so if we could have that sort of, Bilateral, frank exchange of notes, uh, type of conversations, and letting a broader audience be part of that conversation and learn from those. Great, you know, most of the stuff I know about philanthropy and global development, and all—it's it, not because I did uh, undergrad or postgrad degree. It's because I've actually done stuff and worked with really remarkable people and spoken with really remarkable people. I don't have a monopoly on the truth and how everything should be, and I. Every single week when I interview someone, I learn a lot. Now, hopefully that's reciprocated <laughs> but with the other uh, person, but that's why we need these sort of things. And that's why I think the show you're doing is really great. You know, you're looking at, at, at development, you're looking at uh, at the work in India, and uh, there's, there's, the scale of the challenge is so big that the more people we can get informed and enthused and hopefully giving them some ideas that will percolate and trigger really creative thinking to how they can solve problems. Great, so here's to your continued success with your podcast.
1: Thank you, and, and if you could interview any guest, who would it be?
0: <laughs> uh, good question. Well, I think Pope Francis would be amazing. Some people might raise an eyebrow, some people might think great. Uh, I, think it, I think it would be an amazing guest.
1: I could not agree with you more as it relates to leaders in the world and that to religious leaders, I feel like he embodies what all religions embody, which is compassion. Um, and does it in a humble manner that we've not seen with corporate leaders, with government officials and with religious leaders, I feel, uh,
0: in in some time. But, you know, the thing is, uh, maybe I struggle a little bit because actually a lot of the people who I really respect have already been on the show. Uh, so Julia Gillard, First woman prime minister of Australia was chair of the Global Partnership for Education. She came on the show, spoke incredibly well about the the you know sustainable development goal four and the gaps there. and And I just thought just being Australia's first woman prime minister was in itself remarkable. Interestingly, she was born in Wales. Uh, she wasn't born in Australia, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, David Miliband, who was uh, here, at UK's Foreign Secretary uh, a while back, and now doing incredible work with the International Rescue Committee, refugees, displaced persons—again, big heart. Even and then on the celebrity side, people like David Lynch, uh, who, if you like, uh, if you like Dune and Twin Peaks, and you know, Oscar-winning uh, filmmaker and what I think is someone who I think is a creative genius, uh, coming on the show and talking about his, uh, his how meditations you know, transformed his life and maybe one of the best compliments I got. And I think it was, um, uh, Nicole Rycroft from canopy in Canada, who I reached out to her a while back. And, uh, and I said, would you like to be on the show? This is who I am. This is what the show is about. And I think she said something along the lines of, oh yeah, of course I know who you are. I'd love to come on the show. And I thought that was pretty good. Uh, again, I hope I'm getting the person right, but I'm pretty sure I am. And she's doing some remarkable work, by the way, remarkable work in engaging the um, the corporate world uh, for 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 the improvement of our climate and tackling the climate crisis. So
1: no, no, so needed. And and I guess my last and final question is really, I mean, again, you've spoken to 200 people from all walks of life. What is the area that requires more support that just is not talked about even enough?
0: Well, the not talked about, I don't know about, but I'll say that uh, climate itself is about 2% spend of global philanthropy, So, which seems completely outlandish if you think about the scale of the problem. And all you need to do is just forget about the evidence, but just look outside and see what's happening. Um, but do look at the evidence. <laughs> I'm not saying don't look at the evidence. I think we need to recalibrate that to to a great extent because... Two percent, and I th- and depends whose statistics you're looking at, but some people might even say it's a little bit lower. Two uh, percent is just not good enough, and so that's a I think uh, climate. Everybody's talking about it, but philanthropy is not doing enough about it. And uh, and and a topic that maybe isn't spoken about so much, but the likes of of the big foundations are thinking about is about that climate justice, as it were. You know, how do you engage with those individuals who, because of your roadmap to net zero, will will have their livelihoods completely turned upside down and, and what happens to them and their family so thinking about that is is important and i think look we 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 do live in a world full of contradictions you know and a lot of times these contradictions make you think that there's a lot of uh, ambiguity and ambivalence and and you sort of paralyze paralysis through analysis and i think you need to recognize that but recognize you don't have the luxury of inaction and you need to do something and so inform yourself read up on it do some research see what your peers are doing look into yourself and what your heart is telling you you should uh focus on and just start doing stuff and i think you may not get every single decision right but as long as you're on you're getting most of them right you'll be on the right track and you'll be a positive Force a positive actor in the overall scheme of things, but I think that's a, that's a key thing. Um, you know, even something like ESG. If you think about ESG investing, and traditionally there has been many concerns about, oh well, we're not investing in a defense company. You know, they make weapons, and that's not happening. But then you look at what's happening in Ukraine, and <laughs> should they be should they be in the receipt of defensive weapons? Well, you know, so this that's a contradiction right there. Uh, looking at taxes versus philanthropy within a Davos and World Economic Forum context, which is happening right now. Again, there is a dichotomy, but are these, is either or, or, you know, is there a space for for better dialogue? Uh, So that's a contradiction there. Um, Loads of contradictions, just get used to it (laughs) and uh, and embrace the ambiguity and take some action.
1: Great. Thank you, Alberto. I really appreciate your time. Uh, We aspire to have 200 shows under our belt as well and thank you for for sharing your insights and your experiences with our listeners
0: well look thank you so much for having me on the show it's been great seeing you again and uh yeah here's to continued success with the work you do at Dostra. And also with this podcast and sharing insight to uh, a broad community who have the means and are of consequence uh, in in helping you transform the world around you. So thank you very much for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure.
1: Alberto's podcast is called Do One Better. Check it out on your favorite podcast app. Find us at dasra.org forward slash NCE for more details. Subscribe to No Cost Extension on your favorite podcast platform.